You are listening to Real Conversations with Jacob Young. Real Conversations is sponsored by Boys Town. Saving children, healing families for over 100 years. Please go to boystown.org. You can find more information about how you can help the girls and boys of Boys Town. My guest this week is a very talented actor, singer, songwriter, a, a musician. Now, he got his bachelor's degree in theater and directing from Brigham Young University, Idaho. He then went on to audition for and got accepted to the prestigious Royal Birmingham Conservatory, receiving a master's degree in acting in the British tradition, which training uh, from the Royal Shakespeare Company and Shakespeare Globe. It's no wonder that he's a busy actor on stage and on screen. Now, among his movies and television credits, he is seen on the popular streaming series, The Chosen, and in the Book of Mormon videos. He's a gifted musician with music playing on all streaming platforms, and the official music video of his song, Blue City Lights, can be seen on YouTube. Now, on stage, we have something in common. We've both played Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. My guest this week is a new friend, the talented Dave Martinez. You know what time it is. It's time to keep it real with Real Conversations with Jacob Young. Dave. Jacob, you gorgeous man. How you doing? <laughs> hey, right back at you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, man. Thanks so much for coming on and, and uh, you know, sharing your time with us today. And, uh, you know, when I first met you on set and we recently did a project together, I was just, I was blown away by your talent and your kindness. And that's the kind of artist that I strive to be. And I, when I see that, I want to recognize that. I want the world to know that. Thank you so much, Jacob. And um, I will say when we when we met on set, I was having this moment of anticipation, you know, this kind of I felt like my heart was sweating. I was like, man, Jacob Young, like the literal and figurative Mr. Cool. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what to do, man. Like I and uh, to be able to work with you was so much fun because you just are such a giver. And that was an amazing sort of uh, experience for me. So thank you for all the love and uh, thanks for reciprocating. Wow. No, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I, I know that you've had, like we all, we've all gone through a lot of different experiences in, in our childhood and, and, you know, I know that you've had a particularly, an, I don't know how much of an uphill battle and, and if you want to discuss that, but I, I do know that you never really knew your father. And, no. and actually only met him by accident. Would you share that story and, and what you took away from that uh, one meeting with your father? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, my mom and dad, yeah, they weren't married. But uh, when my mom told my dad that she was pregnant, they had some sort of discussion. And I have no idea what it was, but they decided to go their separate ways and my dad was just never involved in my life. Uh, even though we weren't too far away from each other, we both lived in California, Southern California. Um, but one day my mom and I, we went to this route 66 road show in, I think it might've been San Bernardino 
maybe Riverside, somewhere around there, we were just looking at all these old cars, you know, all these pop-up vendors, things like that. And we're looking, walking in this crowd, and then all of a sudden my mom just stops to a complete halt and looks over at this one vendor, and she puts her hand on my shoulder, and she says, that's your dad over there. And I was like, what? And your your mom didn't know that he was going to be there? No, no, had no idea. It was all just uh, kismet, just happenstance that any of that happened. And I'd only heard stories about my dad. Um, and so to be there, I think I was, I must have been six or seven. So I was, I was fairly young. Yeah. Well, well what was, did you, I mean, do you remember that clearly? I remember, I remember the moment leading up to it, watching them speak and then, I don't remember the conversation, but what ended up happening was my mom told me to wait there by this red curb. I remember the red curb and she went and talked to my dad and she said, Jimmy, it's Linda, uh, your son's over there. And he was with his wife at the time and she was going, wait, hold up. You have a son and who is this woman? Um, (laughs) and, uh, they walked over, and uh, his wife, she was so kind. She was very sweet, and she's become uh, a really dear friend since, actually. Um, but uh, we spoke for maybe 10, 15 minutes, maybe that. But um, that was it. Uh, after that, he left, took off, and uh, I think it must have been a year and a half, maybe two years later, um, in 99, uh, he contracted HIV mm. and that slowly was eating away at his system. And then he caught pneumonia from that. Um, and one of his lungs ended up collapsing. So he passed away, uh, from HIV induced pneumonia. And that was just, yeah, that only wow. just that little blip of time was the only time I'd ever met my father, had any sort of interaction with him. And it's interesting because I reflect on that moment now, uh, being a father myself. And it was, I'll I'll remember, like, I mean, I know that you'll understand this. You remember when your kids are born, but being there for me and holding my son Mm. for, for that first time, I was going, wow, this is incredible. And I felt all of these mixed emotions of going, man, my dad really missed out a ton. And also realizing that after the first day of just holding my son and being there, I was going, I have spent more time with my son than my dad ever spent with me my entire life. And for me, that was a wake-up call as to how important fatherhood is. And how important it is to have um, like a father-son relationship. And you may not, we may not all have that. I mean, luckily later on, um, you know, my aunt and uncle raised me and my uncle, um, even though we had some differences, instilled a lot of things in me. But that sort of uh, relationship, I think, is very key in in uh, not just self-identity, but also learning a lot of important lessons in life. Sure. And, uh, yeah, it just made me want to be there a lot more for, for my kids and my community. Yeah, it's so true when 
as a father, I have to be honest. You know, I grew up in a divorced family, too. I've talked about this on the show. Uh, my parents divorced before I could even remember. I think I was nine months old. But only was allowed to visit my dad every, like, twice a year or something like that. So we weren't particularly close. And, um, you know, we, you know I, I strive to spend as much time as possible with him. But it was, uh, I don't know how, you know, being a father myself, I just don't know how anybody could just walk away from that. Um, and, you know, there could have been moments in, I, I know now, in his life that he could have, you know, he's still around, but he could, you know, have, when I was younger, had made more of an effort to see me. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he was just, you know, too busy or, you know, maybe it was another relationship like you were kind of talking to, alluding to with your, your uh, the, the woman that you met. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I remember I was so scared that I was going to be like my father in that way that I ended up falling off the wagon. I started getting drunk. I was scared. Oh. I suddenly become scared to be a dad because I was like, I'm going, all the sins of the father are going to be replayed. And I ended up, um, you know, I finally came to terms with it, right? I was like, I'm going to be okay. I went to some counseling, you know, and I, I, I addressed this with my wife. And I, I said, I just, I don't want to be that father. Yeah, of course. And then the day came and I'm holding my son in my arms and weeping like a baby, you know. Wow. That... That's immense, Jacob. Holy cow. Like, I didn't know that about you. That's that's wild. Well, I mean, you know, we've, we all have our stories, right? And we all um, can relate, you know, as, you know, good or bad. We, we, we find a way to, to, to get through. As a child, not having your father in your life, did that ever make you feel less than? Like when you saw the other kids with their dads? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as a, as a kid, um, I, it felt like it affected a lot of other areas and aspects of my life where I felt like it affected my relationship and sort of, uh, viewing of, of God where it was like, you know, he's supposed to be this, uh, loving person. And I was going, well, my own father isn't around and and I looked at myself and there were a lot of moments where I asked myself is it is it me like did I do something wrong uh you know to not deserve that sort of love um and it was really hard you know and seeing the sort of anguish that my mom was going through and having that um sort of play out in our house and and uh, it, it just, I think, looking at that and really, I don't know. I think it was one of those things where it branched out so much that I, I didn't start seeing it until my mid-20s, where it really started to hit home, where I was going okay, I'm starting to think more for myself. I'm living my life a bit more. And wow, I don't know anything about that side of me. And rather than 
uh, wearing it as a badge of, uh, of, of dishonor or trauma, it was, somebody said to me, they were like, yeah, this is a hard thing and it's okay that it's hard. However, you get to choose who you want to be. And that was uh, eye-opening, something where I was like, oh, really? I like, this is a choose your own adventure. And even though, you know, I was worried the same thing with what you're saying. I was like, am I going to be like my dad? The sins of the father, is that going to happen to me? And look, there's all this talk about, uh, you know, nature versus nurture, stuff like that. But there was this reality where I was like, yeah, I have part of my dad in me, but also I have all of these other people that came before in me and I can choose who I want to be. That's my life. And I'm reclaiming that. I'm not just going to, uh, you know, throw it somewhere to the wind and say, whatever, I'm going to choose to actively make it my life. And, uh, I can't control everything, but what I can control and, uh, work for, I'm going to do. That's such great advice. Uh, because there's so many stories. Um, even my brother, you know, he went down, he went through the same experience as I did. And, you know, he took it a little more to heart. And instead of it being a branding of his identity of who he was, mm. or rather he made it a branding, you know, he made it like, this is, this is my, you know, this is the, the patch I have to wear the rest of my life because of this. Um, but that is, uh, you know, what such great advice, you know, you, you can, you can really allow yourself to, you know, you, you if it's if you know if it's the hardest thing you have to go through in life how what can we learn from it right how can we grow from it and that's one thing i always t- try to tell myself you know no matter what and, and there's always obstacles every single day i go through an obstacle or two and you know maybe it's not as bad as the last one but um to i guess it's that old you know saying that's you know look on the bright side you know we can find we can find a path. Now, I, w- I do want to talk a, b- a little bit about, because I know you're just talking about your mom, and you're being raised as, you know, by a single mom. You know, it's challenging. Yep. You know, my mom was single for a time, had four kids, and she ended up marrying my stepfather, and he was f- fresh out of prison. Um, because who's going to love a woman who's got four kids? It's kind of a tough thing sometimes. Yeah. But I, I think she was kind of probably. He's a great man, by the way. I I love him. He's still in her life, and you know, to this very day. But you wow. were raised by a single mom. It's challenging. But you also sadly lost your mom to cancer yeah. when you were only nine years old. How did you cope with something like that at such a young age? Well, I, I mean, to give you a bit of a timeline. So my dad died in, I think it was July of '99. And then my mom ended up losing her battle with cancer in June of 2000. So within like 11 months of each other, uh, almost to the day, which is wild. I think, uh, yeah, he died, I think, July 2nd, but she died, yeah, June 3rd. Um, That that experience in and of itself, that was the hardest thing I have ever gone through. And it it's, it was the loss of my world, but also 
I was there for that. Um, it wasn't just something where I was in another room or somebody took me to Disneyland and distracted me. I was there. Uh, I, I got done with school. I went to a, uh, at that time, I went to this uh, private uh, Catholic school that was right across the street from where I lived. And in order for me to be able to leave the premises, somebody from my family, an adult, had to come and grab me. Um, and it was one of my aunts or one of my uncles came and I was going, what are you doing here? Like, uh, are we having a party? Mm. You know, and they were like, well, we've, we've got some things we need to talk about. And um, I was a little perplexed by that, but I was going, well, what the heck? We went over to the house and I was like, where's my mom? Uh, and they just sat me down and they were going, Dave, your, your mom's, uh, she's not doing too well. Like the cancer's uh, really, really doing a, a number on her. And uh, at this point, you know, I had been there for my mom when she was doing chemotherapy. I'd seen her get blood drawn. Um, and because she was a single mom, I mean, she took me to a lot of these places. And granted, my grandparents did help in a lot of ways, you know, to, to alleviate things. But when they couldn't... Um, I was right there in the thick of it. And I just remember watching this process, you know, her lo losing her hair, um, going through all of these, uh, these hardships. Um, and funnily enough, we went to go see, we were trying to go see beauty and the beast at, uh, at the Pasadena playhouse when it was going. And I remember this vividly uh, starting to kind of see the deterioration of my mom. We went, we were trying to find it. And back in the 90s, like, we didn't have, uh, you know, GPS or anything. So yeah. just cruising around Pasadena trying to find this place. And something happened where she had to stop suddenly. And she, she stopped so fast that she went forward and she hit her breast on the steering wheel. She had breast cancer. And it just, it started, she just started bleeding. And she was just screaming. And I was going, I don't know what is going on oh, here. Man. And it was so hard because at that point, you know, you're like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, You're not equipped with those uh, skill sets no. at that age. No, not at all. Um, so going back to this moment with my family, um, I was like, my mom is invincible. I have seen her overcome everything she's had thrown at her. Like, we're going to be fine. But they were going, you know, this is a little different. Um you know, and if she does uh, survive, uh, it's going to be, she's going to have a bit of a hard time for a little bit. Um, you know, you might have to come live with us. And I was like, well, my mom and I will go anywhere. We'll be fine. Um, but when we got to the hospital, yeah, uh, I just remember we were in the waiting room and it felt so cinematic. It almost felt like a Scorsese film where we were just sitting in this waiting room and then the doctor opened up the door and he said, if any of you want to see Linda for the last time, like this is it because at that point they'd put her on life support and a, uh, she had developed a little hole in her lung that was just filling up with fluids and it just, they couldn't do anything about it. And so I, I'd seen her on life support prior to that. She was unconscious uh, or sedated really, but at that moment, I was like, I'm going to go in. I just ran, ran down that hall. 
down that cold tile hallway and just walked into that room. And my grandparents were sitting at the foot of the bed, family all there. And, you know, I watched her pass. Like they gave her medication to make sure that she wasn't feeling that pain, but everybody's saying the Lord's Prayer, our Father, and and I was just screaming, um, just begging her not to leave. And and uh, it was a hard moment, you know. Um, and it, it haunted me for a, a long time. Um, but one of the things that I, I don't regret is I was with her to the end, and I saw her out. And as hard as that is for a child, and I don't recommend this for, for anybody to be like, yeah, you should <laughs> let, uh, let your, your young kids be in the room. That's a very, very, very personal decision. But for me, at that age, it planted a seed of reminding me how fleeting life is, how all of this is, none of it is guaranteed. Uh, not even the next five minutes and that's a reality. Like, change is the only constant. And watching somebody that had given everything that she had for me um, to, you know, pass on um, and pass the torch was like, you know, it was difficult. And I had moments of anger and resentment and rage, and it manifested in all sorts of different ways. But it also taught me a supreme lesson of learning to appreciate the moment, learning to appreciate those that I do have in my life, and really working on being kind. Because even though you know somebody might live to 112, it's still relatively not a very long time. Yeah. We think we have a lot of uh, days ahead of us, but they go by so fast. They sure know? do. They sure do. Did you, after experiencing that, did you go to therapy or did you talk to people? How, what was the therapy that you, because you said you had some anger, you had resentment, and that's, oh, yeah. that's a lot for a nine-year-old to go through. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, the, you know, there was a therapist there that uh, she was saying, look, he's going he's gonna to need, you know, therapy for quite a while. Um, and, uh, it was still kind of up in the air as to who was going to take me. Um, you know, all of my, most of my aunts and uncles were there, but, uh, I was initially willed over to my grandparents, but they were very old, you know, they're in their eighties at that point and they're going, we love him, but we are physically not equipped to take care of a nine year old kid. Like it's just not going to happen. So uh, when I went to go live with my aunt and uncle, I, I had a, a few, um, like one or two kind of uh, uh, therapy sessions, but it wasn't anything that I would say was really beneficial. I didn't, I didn't start getting help, like actual help, until my later 20s, when I was 27. So I, I'd take taken all that anger and all that and I put it into either stuff like skateboarding or uh, listening to music um, you know I, I'd, I'd put all of the acting or music 
musical inclinations that I'd had on hold after she died. Like there's something in my voice that just changed, you know, and like I just didn't want to do anything performing wise. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I was like, you know, I'm going to get into acting again and or just performing because it might be fun. But for a long time, I just steered clear of that and put myself into more physical sort of uh, roles like, yeah, skateboarding, basketball, things like that. Well, it seems like, though, through this experience, because now knowing you and getting to know you, um, it seems like your childhood led you to become a sensitive person, artist. And sensitive people often gravitate, of course, to the arts. What eventually led you to want to pursue a career as an actor? You know, this is where it gets kind of fun, is in eighth grade, I had this wild card of of a teacher, and her name was Delilah Shank. And I was like, that is the greatest name, <laughs> the last name in particular. I was like, man, Delilah Shank, you're wild. But she, she was going, I want to put on a play with students. And uh, I was like, well, that's silly, you know. I was in eighth grade, so I was like, I, this is dumb. Who, who does acting, theater, whatever, nerd? Um, but uh, she somehow roped me into this, and we did The Diary of Anne Frank. And uh, I have footage from it, and it, I'm going to be honest, Jacob. It's it's so bad on my end. <laughs> I thought you were like, it, is... it was so great. I knew I was going to be an actor from there on out. <laughs> no, no, no. I like, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, this kid did not absorb like the gravitas of, of what the material is, you know, it's still kind of like, I'm going to be a little bit of a prankster and play it cool, you know, talking about all these heavy issues, you know, combing my hair at random bits that just have nothing to do with anything. But I was going, what it did do is it introduced me to a community of people and doing fun stuff after school that was different from, you know, skateboarding and listening to, to punk music, (laughs) you know? And so I was like, well, this is, this is fun. Um, and then, you know, I got into high school and a friend invited me to, uh, play a song in this musical review. And, um, I I think I played something from Rocky Horror Picture Show, like science fiction, double feature, something like that. And, uh, and I was going, this is really enjoyable. Like I'm, I'm enjoying being on stage and communicating in a different way with other people. And, you know, there was sort of this reciprocating factor that I was like, I could, I could live with this. Let's do it. You know? Um, so I just kept, kept going, kept doing it and, uh, it was just enjoyable. Yeah, man. Well, speaking of enjoyable, I mean, it led you to, uh, eventually studying theater in England. Yeah. <laughs> Home of William yeah. Shakespeare. I mean, most yeah. of us had to read Shakespeare in school and it can be more of a punishment than an, an education. What did oh, you, yeah. uh, what do you think? What, I mean, what do you think kids today can learn from accessing and reading the works of Shakespeare? You can learn about love, the essence of love, 
hatred, uh, desire, cunning, the, the sort of all of the beautiful and horrendous aspects of being a human are all found within the text of Shakespeare. And it is a lot to wade through, and sometimes that in and of itself is sort of a, uh, a wall for people because it feels so archaic, and you hear the these and thous, and you know you kind of picture people in like tights and holding up a skull. Um, but when you're able to actually make it like a really sort of uh, accessible, you start to see just how how living the text is, um, and how timeless some of the advice is like one of my favorite quotes is uh from one of his pieces called all's well that ends well but he says the web of our lives is of a mingled yarn good and ill together and i keep thinking about that all the time where it's yeah our lives are not just either good or bad they're it's everything all at once and uh it's it's food for thought to chew on and it also is a great sort of uh, insight. I think it holds up a mirror to ourselves. We're like, man, sometimes I, I feel uh, lost like Hamlet, but then other times I, you know, could be as, uh, as wild as Nick Bottom and just go for it and be bombastic. Um, but I think the beautiful thing is, is it also teaches the power of, that words do have. And that if we learn to express ourselves better and communicate with others more and be precise, that's the thing I love about Shakespeare is the precision. Because if you're able to like access that and know what you're saying and be able to communicate it well, there is an electric energy that people can just tap into where you're like, wow, speaking is amazing. It's a miracle that we have it. It's a, it's a beautiful gift. And to be able to even converse like this now uh, you know, growing up, I was not very good at communicating. Um, was very kind of uh, just, uh, I don't know. I didn't have uh, a lexical set to express myself. But then just learning Shakespeare, reading it, you open yourself up to all these words where you're like, man, that's how I feel. That's it. It's like a Charlie right. Brown moment. That's <laughs> it. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Shakespeare is like that. It's it's kind of code in, in a way if you've never read it before. And then, you know, you think you have a grasp on it, but then it takes another moment to really start to understand, you know, what he's saying and, yeah. and, and what is the emotional intention behind it. Um, yeah. What a great way to describe Shakespeare. Um, wonderful. And you shift back and forth, of course, between working on stage and in front of the camera. What are some of the more uh, subtle differences, you know, for our our non-acting audience that's out there in theater and in film? Okay, so for me, it feels like theater feels like a marathon where film feels like you're sprinting. So, like, in, in theater, you know, you're preparing for this long journey. You know, you've got to keep people entertained for two hours, and you only get one go at it. It's not like film where... You get a few different takes, different angles, maybe, you know, sit down, have a coffee, talk about it, you know, like when you're, when you're there, you're there, but the, the principles are all the same where it's know what you're saying and pursue what you're saying. But I think the difference is, is on a, again, sort of a macro versus micro scale 
Like, if I want to communicate to a lot of people, of course I have to be a bit bigger. But if I am working in film and I have this tight lens on me, um, I remember I had an instructor that was, it, it was a singing instructor, actually, but I thought it was really helpful for film. He was going, you know, just imagine that you have, like, a, a cute little puppy in, in like, a, just a baby puppy in your hand, and you're just going to sing to this. And I was going, yeah, sometimes that's what it feels like with, with film, where you just have to, you don't want to overdo it, you don't want to disturb what's going on, but you have to make sure that everything is being communicated, um, you know, with just a precise amount of energy, rather than this huge... Uh, space that you're trying to feel it's just very very direct you know and that is a fun challenge and it's wild when you get to mix genres where everything is convoluted but um i don't know it's a it's just a constant challenge and that's why i love film like i'm really like into film right now i think it's so cool yeah there's a you know it's 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 very specific very subtle um yeah you know i i have a you know acting class multiple acting classes work with working actors and it's so funny because it's always the thing that i'm always telling my students it's like it's the old saying less is more less is more easy easy um you know give yourself some room to grow in the scene you know don't start here unless it's requiring it to be on at the very you know at that emotional place so yeah it's um you know film is fun it's it's fun, but also stage is fun. I I, I love oh, both. Dude. I'm uh, yep. I'm with you. Now your life has really been a journey emotionally, and and sometimes of course literally. Uh, you you've moved around a lot from coast to coast. How much do you rely on your gut instinct to determine where you should live your best life? Man. I rely on it up to the point where um, that's a very, very good question. And I'm taking it in because I'm, I think I'm learning something about myself in that there are quite a few times where there are certain areas of my life where I just trust my gut instinct and other areas where I have this instinct and then my logical analytical brain will pop in and be like, are you sure? But with something like living my best life, listen, I, I had a great mentor in my undergraduate that he said to me, he said, wherever you go, just, you will grow where you're planted. You'll go. It's going to be okay. Wherever you go, just grow where you're planted. And I thought about that and it really hit me because it was like, again, it's a choose your own adventure of if I want something bad enough, I can make it happen almost anywhere I go. Um, and it might be hard or have its own specific challenges. But if I want something like say with acting, I was not planning on being in Utah uh, at all. I mean, I drove across the country from, uh, Idaho where I was living all the way to New York. And that, that was a gut instinct moment where I was like, you know what? I don't need to be here. Like this is one of the meccas for acting, but this is not my place. 
and I'm going to go. And ending up in Utah, of all places, (laughs) uh, wild. But the opportunities have been immense because I've applied myself and I've had to get over some of my analytical uh, fear, some neuroses, and go, you know what? I'm going to put myself out there, see what happens. And, uh, you know, I'm on a podcast with Jacob Young from Utah. That's wild. (laughs) Well, you know, I do have to say what a lot of people probably don't know is just how thriving the acting community is in Utah. There is so much going on, and people really care. I mean, from from you know, you know the touring shows that come through, of course, to Sundance Film Festival. Um, you know, if, if people have never familiarized themselves with that, of course, that's Robert Redford's baby. Then he grew that, and um, and then just you know all of the the different opportunities. I mean, Disney now has a stronghold in there in Utah with their you know with High School Musical the series. Andy Mack before that. There's, there's a lot of work that's being done, and why not? It's a beautiful destination. It's absolutely gorgeous. It is. It is. And it's, it's amazing the people that you meet through there. And that's, I think, a beautiful life lesson is you really never know what is going to happen moment from moment. But to live in fear, um, you do nothing. So there's a point where you have to just go, okay, I might be afraid, but I'm going to, Ray Bradbury would say, um, you jump off the cliff and you build your wings on the way down. And that's essentially, it feels like if you, if you do that, sometimes you might hit the, hit the, the floor, but I've found a lot of times you never know where those wings are going to take you. Yeah. You know? Dave, let's talk about your music. You know, And most artists yeah. that I know... They have another little art that's stashed away that uh, they're just dying to share. And I know you've been playing for a long time, um, and you're a really talented musician. Let's talk about what's coming up for you musically. Yeah, so I have a single on Spotify or wherever uh, you stream music. It's called Blue City Lights. Um, released that about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, but I've got one coming up. It's called Fleeting and um, I've made a music video for it, and we're just kind of in uh, post-production for the music aspect as well as the the video. But um, I'm just playing more shows, man, and to be able to play music at this point in my life, because I hid it away for so long. I've been writing songs for like a, like a decade, and I wasn't sharing it with anybody because I was too afraid. I was so scared, and now these are slowly coming along, and I'm making uh, great friends and great strides in those areas, and it's fun to learn to kind of fall on my face and go, okay, for the next one, I'm going to try this. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm hoping to make more music, uh, have maybe a couple EPs coming out uh, within the next year or so, and uh, just continually go and grow. Great, man. What made you overcome that fear? Wow. You know, I think, honestly, like therapy. Uh, In my later 20s, I was, I mean, this all kind of comes full circle with like uh, death and and change. Um, You know, I was going through a lot of things in my, my late 20s 
and uh, a lot of uh, I was dealing with a lot of hurt that um, I had just had from a long, a long, long, long time of, uh, I guess, sort of negating my own feelings, but also coming to the realization that I'd hurt uh, a lot of people in in my life from the decisions that I'd made, and I was going, you know, I've I want to change. I want to be a different person. And not not to be a false person, but to be the best version of myself. And I think part of that includes sharing my music. And I have no idea what anybody will think of it. Uh, you know, that was my thought process at the time. But I'm going to do it. And we'll see how it goes. Um, and I'm going to face that fear. And I'm going to be a more truly authentic version of myself um, because some of these songs not all of them but some of them are like you know little uh, snippets and journal entries of of the past of like that's what that moment was like and I want to show that mm-hmm. it's a it's a little record almost like a it's like a genealogical record of sorts so it's kind of fun to be able to revisit some of these things and go yeah I remember that that's cool and I'm sure somebody else will take it and go associate their own memories with it. And that's what I find so beautiful about that. Like, why not? You know, if somebody vibes with it, that's great. And if somebody doesn't, Hey, I wish you well, you know, right. but, uh, I'm going to put myself out there. Yeah. I don't think I mean, I would, I would imagine that like painters don't go out, you know, like going, I'm going to sell my work for a million dollars one day. I mean, right. that's a great goal, you know, or whatever, but um, they paint because they want to paint and, and they yep. have the necessity to paint. They want to, there's something that's, you know, they need to tell. And I, I feel the same way with music myself. It's so funny. Our lives have paralleled each other in so many ways. It's, it's, it's eerie. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I got on the music bang and bang and I, I started playing guitar at a young age and playing harmonica at a very, even younger age. And you just play harmonica too. I do, which is like a Dude. almost a dead instrument. Do you play? Do you play harmonica? I do. Yeah, yeah I was like, I want to be like Bob Dylan. So yeah. I'd show up to high school and be like, yeah. totally right, playing yeah. the guitar and the harmonica at the same time. You know, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I was lucky and I got signed to a record label. You know, because I was, you know, I was on TV at the time, and I think it might have been a little bit premature, but. You know, I worked about a year on that album, and I was signed under um, the record label Artemis Records with Danny Goldberg, Daniel Glass, who were responsible for the Eagles and uh, 311, and I mean, you name Jeff Jeff Buckley, like so wow. many like really killer artists over the years. And I was fortunate they signed me, and you know, I did an entire radio promo tour across the country. And about halfway through that radio promo tour, I went if this is what it's going to be like, I'm, I don't think I can handle this. This is like, just, it's just so much. It's so scary. And, and there's so much demanding people demanding things of you. And it's like, okay, show up, play, sing, go. And I started to, to have some doubt, but pulled that together. I was, I was, uh, I was, I remember I was in New York city and I was coming out of well, I guess it was like Z100. It was like the, the main station there, like rock station. And I ended up 
I walk out and we dropped off the demo and I'm with Daniel Glass and their number one DJ and I'm going to forget his name, but everybody's going to go, they knew who it is. Um, He recently just retired and he saw me and he was like, who's this kid? He looks like Brad Pitt. And Daniel's like, this is our new, uh, you know, uh, client and, you know, he's going to be blowing up. And so I get on the airplane that afternoon to go back to Los Angeles to shoot an episode of General Hospital. And before I even get to the airport, I'm getting called by my manager and this guy was notorious, this, uh, not my manager, but the, the DJ, the, the disc jockey. And he was notorious for breaking big acts because he had like 15 million drive time listeners. And he said, I want him on the morning show two days from now. We're going to break this kid. So I, I went back. I had to tell General Hospital, sorry. Like they were like, you better show up. And my manager's like, we'll work it out. Don't worry about it. I had all these like threats that were going on. And I went and performed live on the radio station. They spun my single. Um, From there, it catapulted. And it was like, you know, now I was down on, um, I was down in Texas uh, on, uh, what is it? uh, No, it's it's the same company that like Star, all the Star 98.7s and all that. Clear Channel, Clear Channel Radio. Like they were going, we're going to, we're going to throw this thing around. So I was literally playing at the president's uh, daughters of clear channels birthday party in Dallas, Texas. And when the, 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 now, now the producers were like, Oh man, this is awesome. This is going to be amazing. We're going to, you know, this kid's got it. So they decided to invest in an awesome music video. It was, was fantastic. I was bowled over. It happened on September 9th. My birthday was September 10th, and my album was to be released on September 11th, 2001, 9-11. They had life-size cutouts in every warehouse music across the country when we actually used to go to music stores to buy albums. But, of course, because of that, that nobody showed up to buy music. Nobody went to the movies. Everybody was glued to their TV. The world was, you know, our world as we knew it was under attack. And so I told myself that that was God's way of saying that it wasn't meant to be. And so I shut it down for so many years. I kept playing guitar. I kept writing music. But I I refused to play any live shows or do anything. And my wife said, stop writing music for me, because that's what I was writing it for, and go do something for yourself. You deserve this. And so I went back onto that bandwagon eventually again, and I went to Nashville, and I started writing again. And it was the best thing I ever did because it, it got me over that, that total, what felt like an utter loss at that time. And I found better music, new music, because I had lived longer and was more experienced. And, um, and so, yeah, so I just, I think that story is so powerful that you had to overcome that because I was afraid too. I was afraid to, to do anything because I felt like it wasn't going to be respected. Right. Or I wasn't well, going to respect myself for doing it. Well, and for you to, to have, I mean, to have all of these stars align in such a huge, I mean, immense way, that and to have that opportunity, and then to have a a tragedy happen on the day that you're going to release all of this stuff. I mean, that is in that's incredibly uh, stunning. Number one, that uh, you're you're there 
I'm just floored by you, Jacob. I think that's the thing that I'm like, I'm just, I'm taking all of this in and realizing like you've you've lived an amazing life and what an honor it is to be here uh, with you, but also to see that you're not a quitter. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like you a lot um, is I see you and you just go for it and you're still making, you're making music. And I love what you said too about um, getting older. I think so many people focus on, I wish I was in my twenties. I, you know, like my skin, my body, all this stuff. And I'm at this point where I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm out of my twenties and I'm excited to get older. Like there are things that obviously, let's just be honest, kind of suck about getting older where you're like, Oh man, my body may not be able to function the way it did. Um, but you get this wisdom and insight that helps with songwriting, helps with acting, helps with just general living and communication with other people and being able to relate to others. And I think if, if uh, we look at that with like as a, as a gift rather than as a, uh, a sort of uh, curse or something to just like a cross to carry, it's like what a gift to be alive and to be able to continually learn more. I mean, that's, um, that's something else, man. Oh, well, thank you, man. That's, uh, that's very, very kind of you to say that. And, and, and obviously yeah. I'm, I'm not searching for compliments, but oh, keep bringing them. No. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll be $50. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's well worth it. Uh, all my guests, they take a trip in the Jacob Young time machine and they go back that's in time amazing. to give themselves a little bit of advice what would you want to say to 15-year-old teenage Dave? Use your weaknesses. Aspire to the strengths. Be thankful for the present. Enjoy the sun. And it's okay. It's okay to be afraid, and it's also okay to let go. And to continually just recognize that learning to love yourself is a beautiful thing because you can start to own up to your, your mistakes, but also you can own up to your light and to shine in it and to be unapologetic about being the light and the frequency that you are and what a beautiful gift that is and that every day and every minute is, is new and you can choose to be that too. Go forth and rock and roll, dude. <laughs> yeah, man, dude, that's beautiful. You're a beautiful human being. Um, so are you, dude. Thanks brother. Yeah. Uh, one last thing. Uh, Boys Town's motto is, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Hmm. And back in the day, uh, Father Flanagan, when they didn't have all the medical equipment and all the things that they needed to take care of all these boys that were coming in off the Great Depression and had families that were abandoning them, there was one boy that couldn't walk, and so the boys would take turns carrying him to class and taking carrying him to sports you know, games and, and things. And one day, Father just asked one of the boys who was carrying him, he said, isn't he heavy? 
But he said, he's not heavy, Father, he's my brother. Meaning in our lives, we've all had somebody carry us. Who's carried you, Dave? Well, obviously, um, my mom, Linda, I love you. Um, to my aunt and uncle, uh, Marilyn and Steve, I love you very much. I know that there are times where we had disagreements and stuff, but for all the lessons that you taught me, I am so grateful and thank you for your kindness. Um, let's see. Oh man, there's a uh, bad motor Petey, creativity Ann, um, and to my 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 partner Eve. Um, I am grateful for all these people, and it's it's they've lifted me in ways that are very personal, but also ways that I um, without them my my light and understanding of how beautiful life is and how much depth it has, it wouldn't be the same. And, uh, again, I, I want to say again, how grateful I am for somebody like Eve. Um, and thank you for being an amazing mother to our kids. And I love you with all my heart. You're just so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, what a, what a beautiful tribute, and I know they all feel the same way. Um, first of all, man, I want to thank you so much for your openness and your willingness to talk about your childhood. Thanks. You know, it takes a lot of courage to do something like that. You're a great role model for anyone who has had challenges growing up to know that there's a path to happiness, and music is one of those things that makes you happy these days. Um, yeah. Again, remind us, you said everywhere uh, you can stream music, we can find some of Dave Martinez's yeah. original yeah. music. Yeah, and you, you can find that under the name Quixote, like Don Quixote. All right. So, yeah, it's just Quixote, Quixote music. Uh, yeah, Quixote underscore music on, um, on Instagram, uh, and you can find me there. Um, I did want to say one last thing that what you said, to anybody that's struggling out there with with mental health or or just feeling in a rut with with yourself, it's okay to feel what you're feeling first and foremost, but also um, seek the help that you need um, because you don't have to live in that dimension of fear and anger and hurt and sometimes paranoia. Um, there is happiness that you can choose. But sometimes this this little oracle here gets in the way of a lot of things, um, and it's not because it's it's a bad one. It's because sometimes we've uh, we've had the equivalent of something like a broken femur, but we've gone untreated. Um, but that doesn't mean that it can't be treated, and that we can't live uh, in a more sort of succinct and harmonious um, relationship with ourselves. Because that affects the way that we look at the world. And if we take care of that part of ourselves, my gosh, the places you'll go. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I know we're going to be working together again, and I hope it's soon. Me too, dude. Yeah. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to your music. Thank you again for sharing your story. Thank you. Much love to everybody.
That's about all the time that we have for this week, but the Boys Town toll-free national hotline, 1-800-448-3000, is a 24-7 crisis resource and referral number for kids and their parents. They're always there to help anyone having suicidal thoughts, risking any type of self-harm, parenting problems, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, stress, anxiety, anger problems, school problems like bullying and peer pressure, or chemical dependency. If you're suffering with any of these issues or you just need to talk to someone, they're there for you 24-7. Just call the Boys Town National Hotline at 800-448-3000. Don't feel like talking? You can text VOICE to 20121. Someone will get back to you immediately through a text message. Boys Town, saving children, healing families. Till next time, love each other and love yourself.